I'm turning this morning to Hebrews chapter number one, once again, Hebrews chapter number one, and we're going to, by way of a brief review, uh, talk just a little bit about where we began last week as we introduced this uh, new series going through the book of Hebrews. And of course, Hebrews is an extensive book. Uh, Hebrews is a book that is very similar uh, to the book of Romans. Uh, But we also know that the one difference that we see in Hebrews that we see from Romans, one of many differences, is the the central emphasis that is placed upon the superiority of Jesus Christ. Uh, The writer, the author of Hebrews, goes in great depth of connecting the Old Testament types, shadows, figures priests, sacrifices, and points the reader directly to how that's connected to Christ. We entitled the message last week, The Superiority of Jesus Christ, and this is really the second part of that. And I only gave you one of the three points. Again, this one's going to have three points, which I, am, I don't like to do, but this one does have three points. And last week, We dealt primarily with verse number one, which talks about the message of his purpose. What was the message of his purpose? What I want to do is read through these first four verses again to give us the context again of where we began last week. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they." Notice in verse 3, I may have pointed this out last week, and if I did, it's just a review. Notice the phrase, phrases, his glory, his person, his power, and then also by himself purged our sins. We looked last week at how the Lord Jesus Christ, there really is a series of propositions that's being given here. And what the writer is doing is giving us a proposition to consider who is God and who is Christ. And the first proposition we talked about last week was simply that the Son of God is indeed that promised prophet or teacher. He has now come and he has performed the very things in which God had given mankind in shadows and through the prophets and according to the Father's will. So the first proposition was is that God had in fact done what he had, had done what he promised to send the actual prophet or the, the Savior who fulfilled all of these things. So what we see is the second proposition in verse number two, we see clearly that the same Son of God is appointed by the Father to be our King and our Lord. And as a result of being our King and our Lord, He has been appointed the heir of all things. 
That's what verse 2 shows us. But it also shows us that not only was he appointed heir of all things, but it also declares that Jesus himself also made the worlds. A lot of people like to, to, to dissect the Trinity, and they like to say God the Father created the world. But biblically speaking, it was the Trinity that was behind the entirety of the creation of the world, including Jesus Christ himself. He was part of the let us in Genesis when he said, let us make man in our own image. That was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So we see that Jesus Christ is superior in the fact that he has been appointed heir of all things and the fact that he has made the world. The author gives us a clarification, if you will, about the days in which this has happened. Notice the phrase, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. Last days is an expression that deals with the present time, which is contrasted scripturally by what is mentioned in verse 1. What does it say? Spake in time past. So what we see here is there was a way in which God spoke in the past, which was what? Through the prophets, the fathers, and the prophets. How does God speak now in these last days? He speaks to us in these days, these last days. We are, in fact, living in the last days now. There are people who are, uh, who are all excited about when do the last days start. Let me just put that to bed. We're in the last days. We've been in the last days easily since the day Jesus Christ went to the cross. People say, well, we, there has to be one more sign. There, we're waiting on this. Then that will really indicate we're in the last days. Isn't it interesting that the author of Hebrews wrote in his day, in these last days. He wasn't talking about a future time when the last days would start. He's talking about in the last days, God has spoken to us by his son. If I want to know who God is, I look to his son. I don't have to look to new prophets. I don't have to look to uh, people who claim to have visions. I just have to look to his son. So these last days are contrasted with the time past, but it also especially applies to the very last, what we'll refer to as the dispensation. Not the seven dispensations of dispensational theology, but the dispensation of the reign of Messiah. Now, this is a parallel expression that also appears in Hebrews 9, verse 26. I'll just read that to you, which shows us this. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You realize that when Jesus Christ came and sacrificed himself... That was in the last days, or as Hebrews 9.26 says, the end of the world. People are fascinated with the idea of when is the world going to end. Jesus Christ sacrificed himself in the last days, signifying we are living in the end of the world. God is not limited by man's time clock. We have to stop thinking about God as operating on a 24-hour day cycle as if he is limited to what time it is. 
God is not concerned in his prophetic program that it is nearly noon on Sunday. He doesn't operate that way. The last days, the end of the world, we are currently living in those days. Paul makes mention in Colossians 2.20 when he says, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why as though living in the world are you subject to ordinances? In other words, why are you obsessed and concerned about the things of this world knowing that you are in fact living in the last days, the end of the world? So all of the prophets before Christ in all of those times past declared the day would come and this is important, that God would communicate His will in a very clear and more glorious manner than He had ever done before. In other words, it's great that we have the record of the prophets. It's great that we have Genesis through Malachi. But do you know that in the New Testament, we get the clearest and more glorious revelation of who God is when we see Christ? This is the clearest manner in which God has been demonstrated. When we see God, we must look to Christ. When did the Hebrew writer say this would happen? In these last days, spoken unto us by His Son. This is part of the very message of His purposes. That the message of God would be communicated and His will would be communicated that we might be led to look for the next event. Folks, I'm not looking for signs. I'm looking for Him. It is easy for the church to get distracted by looking for signs and trying to equate every world event as now something that's a trigger. Paul never said, look for triggers. He said, look for Christ's return. Now, we can get involved in eschatology. We can get involved in end times prophecy. I mentioned this last week. You can settle whether or not you're pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, amillennial, premillennial, post-millennial. You can settle that in your own mind. But I'm telling you today, that's not what we're supposed to be overly concerned about. We're not supposed to be overly concerned with, are we going to go through the great tribulation? I've heard good intention, meaning Christians argue until veins are popping out of their neck about whether or not we're going to go through the tribulation or whether this is the millennial kingdom or the millennial kingdom. Can I tell you, the message is being communicated in the most clear and glorious manner through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's who we're looking for. Me knowing whether or not we're going through the tribulation or not does not settle my faith anymore. I think there's an argument to be made that we sometimes convince ourselves that God would never allow us to go through those things, but yet he has throughout history allowed people to be martyred. Why do we think automatically that we'll be spared from any sort of wrath just because we're in Christ? So these last days indicate a time period, no doubt, but it's also a reference to what Israel was supposed to be looking forward to, and that's made mention of in Matthew 13, verse 17. Jesus, when he was, when he was giving the parable of the sower and the seed, he makes a very interesting statement about what Israel should be looking forward to. Matthew 13, 17 
Here's what Jesus says, but verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see. Let me just stop us for a minute and let's ponder what Jesus just told his disciples. Many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see. Do you realize how much clearer God was to the disciples through Jesus? The things which ye see, those prophets wanted to see what you're seeing. Do you realize you and I see more than Abraham saw? Do you realize you and I see more than David ever thought to see? Do you realize Abraham and David were not looking forward to a cross? They had no concept of what a cross was. They had a concept of promises, but they couldn't see as clearly as you and I can see. Why? Because God has communicated his will more clearly in his son, Lord Jesus Christ, than at any other point in human history. And he waited until the last days to do it. Notice he goes on to say, These prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them. It's a powerful statement. And to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. Now, isn't it interesting, the next word Jesus says, hear ye therefore the parable. You know what he was saying? Here's something you can hear and understand that even the prophets couldn't understand. You see, parables were not given for the unbeliever. They were given to the believer. To teach parables as a way of evangelism is to abuse Scripture. The parables are not a way to point people to how they're getting saved. It's to point people to understand who have ears to hear and eyes to see. I've watched people till they're blue in the face try to get a non-believer to understand a parable. They weren't intended for the unbeliever. They were intended for the people who could see and to communicate. So what does the author of Hebrews say? Hath in these last days spoken to us by his son. 4,000 years of preparation was being accomplished for the Son of God to be manifested and revealed. You realize that in the course of human history, it took 4,000 years to fully reveal Jesus Christ? Now you realize we're, we're one of those, we're, we're some of those young earth weird people, right? You knew that, right? You're a young earth weird person. We actually believe that the earth is not as old as what science says. I've told you the story. I won't park you very long. I told you the story about the people that decide to play a trick on the scientist, right? And they, they buried a dead cat. They buried a dead cat in the backyard. And they buried that dead cat. And one day they decided that they wanted to test the theory of carbon dating. And they dug that cat up and they took it to a scientist and say, listen, we were digging and we found this this, the bones of this, what appears to be a very archaic animal. And the scientists were all excited about it, and they took the animal and they put it through the carbon dating. Do you know what their carbon dating said, how old the cat was? A million years. The person looked at him and said, we just buried that cat 15 years ago. Folks, you can believe science or you can believe the Word of God. And you can look at this and say, well, who am I going to look to speak to me? Am I going to look to the world or am I going to look to his son? Biblically, it took 4,000 years for Jesus Christ to be manifested in the flesh. 
Now, seemingly, in the scope of time, that's a very small amount of time, scientifically speaking. But do you know how long 4,000 years is? You're not going to live 4,000 years. You're not going to live 1,000 years. You're not going to live 500 years. If God allows, you might reach 100. 4,000 years is a long time. Somehow that's been negated as saying 4,000 years isn't long enough for animals to develop. Right, because that's not how they happen. God created, he spoke. He spoke. So what is Jesus Christ doing? He's speaking unto us. And he's speaking through what he has done. Jesus is termed scripturally by God's own son. That's what the phrase or the word, his only begotten son. Biblically, it refers to the time, the fullness of time had come when Jesus Christ was sent forth, born of a woman, made under the law, for what purpose? That he might redeem sinners from the curse of the law, that they might receive the adoption of sons, Galatians 4, 5. When Jesus Christ appeared, the old dispensation, you really have the dispensation before Christ and you have the dispensation after Christ. You don't have seven, you've got two. You've got the old and you've got the new. I've told us that if you, if you follow the dispensational theory to a T, at some point in history, you have to, if you follow scripture, people were saved by good works at some point if there's seven dispensations. But there's two. There's before Christ and there's after Christ. When he appeared, that old way, that old dispensation it fled away. Now, the wages of sin had a substitute. Is everybody following that? Now the wages of sin was what? Death. Now there was a substitute. Previous to Christ, what was the substitute? An animal sacrifice. Again, if Jesus Christ was not the substitute, I think I mentioned this last week, then why didn't you bring your animal sacrifice today and why did we not sacrifice it on the altar today? Because that's what you would have had to do. Your sin would have had to have been atoned for. But you didn't do that. Why? Because now we had a perfect substitute. Therefore, Christ, as the perfect substitute, the head, the substitutionary sacrifice, the representative of, all his, of his people, was delivered for our offenses. He was made sin for us, although he knew no sin. I was reading here recently, and we've had this conversation in our home, and I'm not particularly picking on this man, but do you realize that Charles Finney, I think I mentioned last week, Charles Finney actually believed that because Jesus Christ died, that means he actually had some sin in him. I want you to think about what I just said. Charles Finney, a hero of the Baptist faith in many circles, did not believe, he believed that Jesus Christ had some real sin in him, that he was actually a sinner. That's the only reason he had to die. He's a hero to many. It's just another one. He also didn't believe in original sin, which he doesn't, he, he believes that we did not, uh, our sin did not originate in Adam. Those are heretical points, folks. Okay, that's heresy. It's not a popular statement. It may, it'll make people mad. It's, it's, it's public information. There's a whole book on it, his own testimony. That's for another day. But understand that Jesus Christ, he became sin, made sin for us, but he knew no sin. 
Why? That he might be made the righteousness of God in him. The sign that his sacrifice was effectual, the sign that he was accepted by God the Father, is the resurrection. When Jesus Christ came forth from the grave, he became what the Bible says is the first fruits of them that slept. He became the first evidence in all of really human history that his sacrifice was the only acceptable means. Because every other bull, every other goat, every other, all the blood that was shed had to be repeated until Jesus Christ came. That's why you don't bring a sacrifice today. That's why we don't have a sacrificial Sunday where we sacrifice the animal on the altar. We'd just be killing an animal. It would have no purpose at all. Nobody took Christ's life from him. These are all the things that Jesus is spoke, he has spoken. He laid his life down on his own volition. They didn't kill him. He gave himself over. He had the power not only to lay down his life, but hold on to your seats, but to take his life up again. No individual has that power. No individual on this planet has the ability. A man can sadly, a woman can sadly take their life. And sadly, we probably all have been affected by that where somebody has taken their own life. And what a sad event that is. But none of them have the power to raise themselves up. Just like a dead sinner cannot put life into themselves spiritually, God has to do it. But he had the power to lay it down and the power to take it up. Corinthians makes mention of this, but Christ having given himself over as a sacrifice, Paul described it as a sweet-smelling savor. Jesus' sacrifice, his death, his burial, his resurrection was a sweet-smelling savor that was acceptable to God. You realize Jesus Christ rose from the grave to never die again. Because he lives, I know there's a song, but this is more important than the song. Because he lives, right, his people shall live also. Because he lived again, because he rose from the grave, that's what he's speaking to us. Adam, go back to the garden now. Adam, on the other hand, was the source of natural life to his children. But he forfeited the life that God had given to him. So that every person, every human being, when Adam fell, when Adam died, we all died. Which is evidence that you and I, goes back to Finney's heresy that says, I'm not, I didn't fall in Adam. Matter of fact, I didn't fall until I committed my first sin. No, scripturally, you were conceived in sin and that all men fell in Adam. So all men die in Adam, but in Christ, all his people are made what? They're made alive. So for whoever he is their life, when he appears, are you ready? He who is our life, when he appears, 
we shall what with him? We shall appear with him in glory. That's what we're looking forward to. I care not today about tribulation or whether I'm going to go through it or not. Here's what I know the promise is. I have been raised to new life in him. And when he appears, I will appear with him in glory, which is an unspeakable truth that you and I just cannot humanly comprehend what that looks like. Because it is not an extension. It's not just a better extension of this corrupted, sin-filled earth. When Jesus is referred to throughout Scripture, one of his names is the name Emmanuel. Now, we've all been conditioned probably to give the response to that. What does Emmanuel mean? Being interpreted means what? God with us. So in the person of Christ, okay, in the person of Christ, what did we actually have happening? This is what Jesus is speaking. We have the person of the divine and human nature being united, being brought into one. So when we look at Christ, we see the, the, the divine and we see the human nature. Which teaches us about the closeness of the union. Okay, this is not, this is not something that's fairy tale stuff here, folks. The union that actually exists between Christ and us. We are actually in a real living union with Christ. The prophets and the Old Testament saints did not understand nor see that concept. You never see Abraham or David writing about their union with Christ, do you? But they were pointing to a promise of a union, but they didn't fully understand what that would look like. That's why this is so important. These last days spoken unto us by his son. John 1 tells us that the word was in the beginning with God and was what? And was God. In the book of John, John the writer is talking about this personal distinction and the unity of the Godhead. I, for years, tried to explain the Trinity in human terms. Here's where I've settled. It is, it is undescribable and it's not possible for us to actually give an accurate description or definition of what the mystery of the Trinity actually is. I used all the cliched Christian ones to try to demonstrate it, and they're so crude. Steam, ice, water. What a pathetic example. It doesn't even come close. It's an unfathomable mystery. We don't know anything beyond what the fact is. The Bible declares there's a trinity. Yet the very basis of the gospel is upon the trinity. So then why does the writer of Hebrews say, that how he speaks to us is through his son. That's the question. So each of the persons of the Godhead plays a part in the work of redemption. How does that happen? It happens this way. The Father chose his people in Christ. We read that this morning in John 6, which led to our, our fantastic discussion in Bible study this morning. The Father chose his people in Christ and on the basis of his choosing, he sends forth his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem the people in which the Father has chosen to redeem them from death. 
How does he do that? He undertakes their cause. He becomes their substitute. What does the Spirit do in all this? The Spirit then communicates who Jesus Christ is. See how the Trinity works. God the Father chose, sends His Son. The Holy Spirit communicates to those who will believe the reality of who Christ is. The reason today that you have arrived at the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is due to the power of the Holy Spirit. Not because you're educated. The one thing I love about many things about the gospel is the gospel is not reserved for the educated. That's why Jesus says you have to have faith like a child. So we become adopted. We might use the term baptized into the name or the faith of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So let's look at this next expression. So he's spoken unto us whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. Jesus Christ was also the creator of all things. What does all things mean? It means things that are visible and invisible. Do you realize there are things we have not seen yet? There are things we don't know about? People get so amazed, and there's this fascination. And if you've been following this recently, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of uh, weird about these things, but this fascination now with getting to space, this renewed billionaires getting to space. What is that really? Well, part of it is just, I did it first. It's just a matter of pride. But it's the desire to go and see something we haven't seen before. But do you realize no, no matter how far in space you go, you will never reach all the invisible things in which Christ has created. You believe the, the scientists about space, they continue to say that there is, no, there is no end point. And that even if there was, humanly, no man could ever reach it because of the continuum of space and you would die before you got there. But yet, he's called here, appointed heir of all things, and he made the world's. Plural. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There are other worlds. He is the, not only the creator, but he is the fountain of life. He is the means of communication of light. Back, I, I just quoted John 1. If you go and look at the first two verses of John chapter 1, it says, The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Biblically, Christ was made flesh. He dwelt among us. Emmanuel. When the angels who sinned were cast down to hell, Bible says they are reserved in everlasting chains of darkness until when? Until the great day of judgment. Folks, here's what sin has done. Sin has put a veil between every man and God. 
And the only means and the only source of breaking down that veil in order to see is light. Jesus Christ is not only the source of light, but he is the very, the very means in which we are made acceptable to God. How did he do that? By coming to this earth, taking on that robe of human flesh, never ceasing to be God, and suffering not just in passion, not just in injury, not just in hanging on the cross, but in his actual death. When the writers make mention of light shining out of darkness, who was that light shined upon? It is an innumerable multitude of people. Even though the whole world is under condemnation, there is an innumerable multitude of people who will become partakers with Him. As His children, as we read in Philippians 1.29 this morning, if we are in Christ, we are also going to suffer with Him. He destroyed the power of death. He's already destroyed the devil. By doing what? By showing them the path of light and how they can be delivered through not only the fear of death, but how they can also be freed from the bondage of sin. Let me ask you a question. How did Jesus Christ do that? What did Jesus Christ magnify most in his ministry? Some people might say his miracle. Some people might say his goodness. Some people might say in his servant. But you know what Jesus really did? His ministry magnified the law. And you might be asking yourself the question, how did Jesus magnify the law? There's your assignment. Read the life of Jesus and tell me if you don't see that in all of his teaching, he was magnifying the veil that was between them, the fact that they had broken the law and that there was no way they could be made acceptable to God. When he mentions in Colossians about spoiling principalities and powers and made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in the cross, he was declaring to them that it is only in me that the law can be fulfilled. Romans tells us that by man came death, that's Adam. By man came also the resurrection from the dead, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Christ is the first fruits. All that are his, all that are Christ, will appear with him in glory. You say, how do you get all that from verse 2 in Hebrews? That's understanding Scripture. You see, God has revealed himself through his son. But as appointed heir of all things, the Lord Jesus Christ has an independent right himself to the sovereignty of the universe. There's no question he has that. But Jesus Christ is God manifested in the flesh. When somebody asks you, how do you refer to Jesus Christ? One of the ways you should describe him is God manifested in the flesh. If I want to see God, I look to Christ. If I want to see the nature of God, I look to Christ. He's called the Son of God. He's called the Son of Man. He's called the Mediator. He's appointed heir of all things. 
Colossians 1.18 said he's termed the firstborn or the heir of all of creation. He's also will be the final judge. Psalm 82.8 says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. It's interesting that Abraham is termed in Romans 4.13 as being the heir of the world. He's even declared as being the father of Christ, but, and, and, that all families of earth shall be blessed. Why? Because the seed of Abraham was fulfilled in whom? In Christ. We also know that Philippians 2, 6-11, I'm going to read this to you. This is one of my favorite passages. Jesus, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Please remember and know that he did not do away with his God characteristics. He did not cease to be God. He simply made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I always love when the Apostle Paul uses the word wherefore because here's where he uses it. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we see here very clearly Christ is the Lord of all things. All things here below, all things above, all power has been given to the Son over all flesh. All men, either willingly or at one day, which is what Philippians 2 is teaching us, every knee shall bow. That doesn't mean every person will be saved. But that does tell us that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your, 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 your place in life is, one day, every single person will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Today, as believers, we already confess that. Jesus Christ is Lord. So, we are taught here that as the reward of Christ's obedience unto death, all power in heaven and earth was committed unto Him. Because He has that power... Somebody quoted John 10 this morning in Bible study. He has the power of gathering his sheep. He has the power to gather the sheep. All who hear my voice will do what? Will follow me. The exaltation that we learn about here, even in Philippians and here in Hebrews, shows us that the exaltation of the Son of God or Christ at His Father's hand, He is now surrounded at this very moment. Can you imagine this? Jesus Christ right now is surrounded by an innumerable multitude of people who have already, been, have already graduated to glory. But you know when Paul writes about that we're already seated in heavenly places, this is one of those great mysteries of God. Somehow, someway, we're already seated there and we're counted with the multitude who is surrounding the throne of God. And we say, how can that be? I'm right here. Paul declares we're already seated with him in heavenly places. 
We've already been translated into His everlasting kingdom. It was God's eternal purpose. And the, the message of His purpose was to make known the, to the principalities and the powers His wisdom and that the church would be redeemed with the Savior's blood. Folks, when somebody asks who is the head of the church, the head of the church is Christ. Every member of that church is a member of His body. They're a member of His flesh. They're a member of His bones. You are brought into such a union with Christ. You are brought in such a union with Christ that His, our sins, He has taken them. And as in a way of an exchange, His righteousness has become ours. I cannot fathom and understand how a wicked sinner like myself has the righteousness of Christ that makes me acceptable before a holy God. I cannot comprehend that. But yet that's what the Bible declares. The Bible says that Christ did no sin. There was no guile upon his lips. But Psalm 40 verse 12 says this. Mine iniquities have taken hold upon me so that I am not able to look up. Those two hymns that we sang today were not hymns about losing salvation. Those were the songs being sung by believers who are so enthralled with the majesty of Christ and the superiority of Christ that they know how unworthy they are to receive of such a great gift that they're acknowledging that even now our heart fails. The psalmist goes on to write, he says, I'm not able to look up. With regard to his iniquities, they say, they are more than the hairs of my head, therefore my heart faileth me. You know what the the psalm writer realized? I have so many iniquities still within me, yet I somehow have the righteousness of Christ that makes me acceptable before a holy God that has already translated me into his everlasting kingdom. And yet I am beset by these sins that outnumber the hairs of my head. Romans asked the question, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? No one. No one can lay anything to the charge of His people that will separate them from the love of God. I don't care, folks, how attacked you get in this world. I don't care if somebody looks at you and says, listen, your message and that church that you're going to preaches all that heresy and teaches all that. No one or no thing can separate you from the love of God. If someday we come to this building and this building's been mowed down, and if you think this isn't a possibility, you're living in a dream world, that this building could be mowed down, that will in no way, shape, or form separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. It has never nor will ever be about a meeting house, and that's all this building is. You mow it down, we'll just meet somewhere else. But you understand that what God was talking about here laying anything to the charge of God's elect. The reason that nothing can be laid to the charge of God's elect is not because of our our merits or our worthiness, but it's because we have been robed or arrayed in His unspotted righteousness. There is no sin to be found. And because of that, one day we will all sit down with Him and reign with Him forever. When were we given? We were given to Christ by, the, by His Father 
in eternity past. Before you were ever born, the Father gave you to the Son. Notice I didn't say the Father gave you to the Son when you chose and decided for Christ. It was before you were ever born. That is, in fact, what the covenant of grace is. To be given is not just simply given without a cost. They were given to the Son by the Father. And in order for them to be received, Christ had to undertake their cause. The first thing he had to do was cancel your debt. Can you look with me for just a moment? We'll talk about this in the weeks ahead. Look at verse 3. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. There's your canceled debt. What did Jesus do immediately after he purged our sins? Now, immediately is an is a, is a extended word, right? Because you say, well, he didn't die on the cross and then immediately go to heaven because he was seen to many witnesses. Remember I told you not to get caught up in time? What did Jesus do after he purged our sins? He sat down. I mentioned last week that no priest, when he was ministering in the Holy of Holies, making a sacrifice, ever sat down. As a matter of fact, he wasn't allowed to sit down. It was symbolic. To sit down means it's a finished work. You know why the high priest never sat down? Because it was never finished. There was always another atonement. There was always another bull. There was always another goat that had to be sacrificed. There was always more blood necessary. Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father is not just exclusively so that he'll hear your prayers intercede for you. He sat down because he finished the work. Jesus Christ did not make salvation possible on the cross. He actually accomplished it. I repeat that nearly every week on purpose. We don't preach a gospel that makes salvation possible. We preach a gospel that has already acquired and accomplished salvation. The cross was not just something for me to look at and say, I'm going to acknowledge that or I'm not going to acknowledge that. No, it was actually effectual. It actually accomplished something. By him canceling our debt, notice it says by himself he did that. What does that mean? That means that was the only way to have your debt canceled. By himself. Yet God the Father and God the Holy Spirit all played a part in redemption. But Christ was the only means of canceling debt. What does John 14 tell us that Jesus is doing now? Well, he's at the right hand of the Father. He's our mediator. He's making intercession. But John 14 also talks about he's gone to a place to prepare a place for us. I remember as a child and probably as a young adult, sadly, my obsession was what my mansion was going to look like. I don't give two nickels now what it's going to look like. I don't care. It means nothing to me. I remember thinking about what's it going to be like on the streets of gold and what's it going to be like gates of pearl and jasper and I wonder what kind of fun things we're going to do in heaven. What kind of activities are going to be there in heaven? And then you study the Bible and you realize the activity for all of eternity is the worship of the man, the Savior, who canceled your debt. It is so small-minded and foolish to think, to be obsessed with, I go to prepare a place for you, what the place is. Because if Jesus Christ isn't there, who cares what it looks like? 
But he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, paraphrase, I will bring you again unto myself. That is my great hope today. When this world goes darker and darker and darker and grows further and further away from Christ, I ought to be growing more and more encouraged. Do you hear what I'm saying? You ought to be more encouraged when things go dark. Stop giving in and living as if you don't know Christ. Now, if you don't know Christ today, you have no hope. And I'm, I'm, I'm pleading with you, repent and believe the gospel. But we cannot live like hopeless people if we know Christ. Because he's already prepared a place. The very church of Jesus Christ has been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. We are going to abide in an everlasting kingdom that will always and forever reveal and speak the wisdom of God. You know when Jesus himself said, with me you can do nothing and nothing shall be impossible? Do you realize just how deep he was talking? He wasn't talking about just healing a blind man. He was talking about the very, the very edges of eternity. Next week, we'll, we'll deal with that last expression of verse 2, and it's connected into verse 3. By whom also he made the world. How that's connected to being the brightness of his glory. I hope you'll find comfort today in understanding not just the message of his purpose, but understanding the superiority of Jesus Christ and how he is so much better than what the Old Testament understood and could even recognize. I want to do things a little bit different order today. We're going to be dismissed in prayer, but would you turn with me? I want to read this as our final scripture reading for the day. And I hope this will give you as much hope as it's given to me. I've read this a few times this week. And it's the very last few words of the Bible. It's Revelation 22. And it begins in verse 12. Jesus here is announcing in chapter 22 that he's coming quickly. Again, time, remember, quickly. It's not according to God's time, not according to our time, it's according to God's timing. And behold, I come quickly, verse 12, and my reward is with me. To give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things... God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. He which testifieth these things saith, please meditate on these words. Surely I come quickly. Amen.
Even so, notice who's coming. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I can't think of a better way to end our time together today. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, as we bring this time of corporate worship to a close, we thank you for the power of the Spirit working in our hearts today that has given us ears to hear and eyes to see. And I believe I'm correct when I declare today that every believer in this room could say together, even so, come, Lord Jesus. We look forward to the day when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, in whom He has spoken to this world, and to every believer, He has spoken the message of His purpose. Father, may we not let these words fall from our heart. May we leave here today encouraged and refreshed and edified because we've been reminded of the great sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made for his people. But Lord, edification and refreshment, if it stops there, was not your intent. May it give us a zeal, a zeal to tell the gospel to people around us, to evangelize our friends, our family, our co-workers, May we never be stingy with the gospel message that we've been entrusted with. Lord, I pray that you would empower each one of us through the Spirit to be bold and to be courageous, to not be fearful, to stand even in the face of that which opposes what your word has so clearly commanded and declared. And Father, we do not know what tomorrow holds. We do not know if even tomorrow we'll have breath in our lungs. We don't know tomorrow if this church, this building will still be standing. But we have the promises of a coming kingdom. A kingdom that's been secured through the precious blood of Jesus Christ in whom continues to speak in these last days. Father, we pray now that you will go with us. And may we leave here today rejoicing. And it's in Christ's name and for his sake I ask these things. Amen. Lord bless you. Thank you for being here today.